there's always been this idea that as for many gaming communities that we are underdogs so turning around and critiquing publicly the publisher and the game system is in many ways biting the hand that feeds us but i don't think it, the game studies community is incapable of critiquing the wizards of the ghost and dungeons and dragons i just think that they haven't done as much of it as they should welcome to conversations and game studies a series of podcast talks with scholars who research video games in their academic work. As usual, I'm your host, Adam Hushedi, talking to you from Central European University in Vienna. And today, I am joined by Christian Björkelo from the University of Bergen in Norway. With Christian, we will be discussing the huge role that Dungeons & Dragons plays not only in video games and tabletop games, but also in the scholarship that is produced on them. And all of this is based on Christian's article from last year, I am bothered about D&D. &D. So Christian, hello and thanks a lot for joining me. Hello, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. First, let me mention a little bit about Christian's scholarship. He is primarily a popular culture and folk culture scholar, and he has done research on various topics. For instance, recently he analyzed the Netflix series Sex Education and how it portrays intimacy. However, he has also done extensive fieldwork among far-right groups, for instance, researching Italian fascist groups, or looking at how online white nationalist communities interpret games such as Skyrim as potential white supremacist narratives. And on top of that, if I'm not mistaken, Christian is also an avid painter of miniature models, which you can see on his Instagram, and you should check it out there. Very impressive. Thank you. <laughs> so Christian, your scholarship casts a very wide net, and as with every guest, I would start by asking you how you ended up researching video games and tabletop games, and is this field easy or hard to establish yourself in, in Norway, or maybe more broadly, in the Nordic region? That's a that's a long story. I'm old, old as dirt. I'm a, a originally by training a folklorist, but my interest was mostly within uh, subcultures and extremist cultures, doing work on neo-Nazis and fascism. And I was doing that for many years alongside uh, work on social media and also doing a little bit of game design on the side, uh, making role-playing games and then teaching communication at the university and then at some point, I had an opportunity to just get into game studies. I was offered the opportunity to do uh, a PhD on transgression and boundaries of games and play. And it was at a point of my life where I was fed up with death threats from fascists. I kind of thought that let's let's do something else. Let's do something more peaceful and quiet. It did not turn out that way. Because this was right on the heels of Gamergate, but it's um it's in many ways uh, uh for me a, a completely natural kind of progress. I did one of my first papers as a student on role playing games and folklore, so to me returning to to games and bringing into this my ethnographic sensibilities as a folklorist and looking at at games culture and players and the player communities, looking at how the folk is expressed through games, but also looking at how politics is expressed through games. That, that ties in my interest in extremism and also look at how games both radicalize and de-radicalize people, right? So there's, there's opportunities for both within games culture. So it's, it's like coming home in many ways to do game studies. And of course, it is one of my major hobbies and interests, like playing games, both digital and tabletop, 
has been a huge part of my my life since since I was a kid in the 80s. Excellent. And would you say that in general academia in Norway, because you're at the University of Bergen at the Department of Linguistics, Literary and Aesthetic Studies, right? Yes. So would you say that academia in your region is in general open to having game study scholars in fields which would relate to media and pop cultural studies, maybe? That's a difficult question. It's open to it, but it's not a well-established field. We are spread out and we're spread out thin, but there are some pretty heavy hitters coming out of Norwegian game studies, but there are no dedicated game departments. There are some game design departments in the eastern part of the country, and there are media scholars who focus a lot on games, and you will find psychologists who focus on games, and we are always working towards finding some kind of common ground, finding a way to establish the field better in Norway. So that's that's an ongoing process, but we're lucky to have, uh, uh, you know, Good ties in Bergen. We are a handful of people who are in, into games, and we are always trying to recruit both students and other professionals. And our colleagues seem very interested in what we're doing uh, because it is a very different field from most of their own. While I try to argue that uh, it's not, it's really not that different. Mm-hmm. And I guess since you've been an avid tabletop gamer, Dungeons and Dragons has always been close to you, which is. Probably also one of the reasons why you could pen this research last year titled I Am Bothered About D&D, so I would move straight into that. Could you maybe just give a quick rundown of what Dungeons & Dragons actually is? Because I realize that it's not that obvious. That Dungeons & Dragons is a world, a universe, but also kind of a system that unrelated content can assimilate a set of rules. So could you maybe just give a quick overview of how Dungeons and Dragons as a world and rule set operates and how maybe these two things are the same and separate sometimes? Of course. Well, first of all, Dungeons and Dragons is mostly a, a system. It is a system born out of, in many ways, wargaming and, and kind of the, it's a natural development out of the fact that you're moving things around or maybe on a map or then suddenly in a dungeon, you're moving these characters around and you give them names and then suddenly you give them personality. So it develops from there naturally, from this natural kid-like play with toys, right? So it's, it, it builds from there. You just have these rules from wargaming that creates kind of a framework for this play. It is not the only progress that was made here that created uh, Dungeons and Dragons. There are other games that are coming out at the same time, does things that also influences Dungeons and Dragons. So you can talk about different kinds of play that also influence Dungeons and Dragons. It is just kind of the, the nexus of so many things here that, that creates Dungeons and Dragons in the 70s. Uh, when people think of Dungeons and Dragons as a world, uh, we are usually discussing Feyrun and, and Forgotten Realms, which is one of the campaign settings for Dungeons and Dragons, but it's far from the only one. So, But it is the most commonly known, though it's not the original either, but it is the one that, that most people play and the one I played when I uh, started playing Dungeons and Dragons in the early 90s. Had a lot of fun with that. Okay, thank you for that breakdown. And tying into that, could you also give a brief rundown of how Dungeons & Dragons became such a huge entity from its humble tabletop roots? Because today you can see it in everything from Stranger Things to actual tabletop games and video games. So how did Dungeons & Dragons manage to be so enormous over the years and decades? Again, again a really, really big question. And there are people writing books on the history of D&D. 
and I'd rather not step on their toes. So I try to keep it brief and general because they have a lot more specialized knowledge about the kind of the publishing history and, and the different moves that were made. The first publications of Dungeons and Dragons were, were more fanzine-like, right? But it, it spread well on a word of mouth, and it established itself pretty soon. And while there were other games developed at the same time that may have at points been more popular or have gone in different directions, it became early on a, an important standard bearer. Early on, uh, the company publishing it, TSR, became also painted as a villain because it had all this influence on the, the hobby, which we have to understand is a niche hobby. This is a very small community, right? Internationally, it is a really, really small community compared to people who enjoy video games today or, or, or watched movies in the 80s. This is a small community of people. So the lines of conflict, uh, are that more intense, I think. So there's this development during the 80s. There are a lot of different games. Dungeons & Dragons is, is sticking around and developing and redeveloping and, and improving on that rule set. It has its ups and has its downs uh, during that period. But I think what happens, what really, really put Dungeons & Dragons in an important place was with Wizards of the Coast coming in and buying it and with the with the 3.0 rules taking over from the advanced Dungeons & Dragons rules that I were used to playing and 3.5 and the open gaming license and the attempts at the D20 umbrella for gaming. They started really, really taking uh, more space within the community and within the kind of culture. Uh, and that was a... a, a, a a willed pro uh, process from Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast itself is owned by Hasbro, right? Not at this point. They buy it later. I don't remember the year. But yes, that was also something that irked the community when that happened. One thing was Wizards of the Coast had already gotten a bad reputation, but they do well in expanding. But I think what we see today um, is a result of many different factors. One thing is you had the actual place online that really brought it forward. You've had also the pandemic that that made people get together in smaller groups and also play more online. They needed social interaction in a way that video games don't necessarily provide. Uh, so that's it, it fits that. But there's also um, the fact that those of us who played role playing games, including D and D, in the eighties and nineties, are now old enough to make decisions about what you get to see. So you will find that the people who are making the movies and writing the newspaper articles and doing all these sorts of things are much more familiar with D&D &D and may even have been players themselves back in the day. So that helps create more attention to the hobby and, and Dungeons and Dragons in particular. And indeed, one of the basic premises of your study is that Dungeons and Dragons have become synonymous with the role-playing hobby and that the vast majority of, I think, especially big-budget RPGs today all in some shape or form are basing their rules on Dungeons and Dragons. So can you maybe give us a picture of where Dungeons and Dragons and the Wizards of the Coast are today in terms of the economics of the entire ecosystem? Well, they're not completely transparent about the economics of it, uh, but they have claimed that 50 million people played Dungeons and Dragons or have played Dungeons & Dragons in some form or another, or even just watch an actual play, we are unsure on exactly how they, they calculate this. If this is 50 million people from day one, or just 50 million this year, we don't know, right? Either way, these are small numbers, if you look at it like from a, from a big perspective. So still, 
Dungeons and Dragons is a niche market. And though it is the biggest role-playing game out there in, in terms of sales and player base and attention, that's it's still small. I always try to think that this is a, a, this is a, a niche market, and we have to keep that always in mind. But they have been very successful with their after the debacle of the fourth edition that nobody seemed to care much for. Fifth edition opened up a lot. They were very clever in their marketing of the fifth edition and its open gaming license making sure that everyone could produce books for for that uh, system, allowing anyone with uh, any kind of idea, any imagination that they wanted to put forth to the people and some kind of creativity, they could always use a ready-made system. They didn't have to create their own system, which is hard work, right? To, to create a, a, a game system that works. So that was available for them easily, free of charge at the time. Right. Uh, and still is. But, you know, stuff has happened. So they managed to kind of take a large part of the market that way and using marketing well towards the youth uh, and strengthening their brand with this, with, with basically this 5e kind of approach. So in that way, you, you end up with the fact that a lot of people are using 5e when they go to Kickstarter with their with their world system and any game that wants to I don't know any publisher who wants to make, for instance, their books or their, their movie into a role-playing game, 5e is readily available. And here's a problem, right? 5e may not be the right system to tell the story that they want because systems matter. So that's that's where the problem starts occurring. But it really, really became a problem earlier this year where they proposed changes to the open gaming license that counteracted some of the original statements in the license, it would have made people have to pay a small part of their profits to Wizard of the Coast if they had successful 5e products. And that was a lot of debacle. And now a lot of people are, are spreading out and creating new systems. A critical role, maybe one of the biggest successes for Dungeons and Dragons is now creating their own systems and promoting them instead. This was a, 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 a strong blow against Wizard of the Coast and the 5e kind of brand. And do you think, maybe not at this point, after the backlash, that they have been in a position where their monopoly on the market, let's say, or their influence culturally has been so huge that people would automatically go to Dungeons & Dragons instead of trying to develop their own systems? I won't speak on their behalf or kind of project motivation onto them, but there are some marketing kind of uh, mechanics at play here. So, of course, they want to dominate the market. That's only natural. This is what they want. The open gaming license was a way of doing that. It's something they, at least parts of Hasbro and the corporate leadership wants to do, but I do believe that also the people who are actually working with Dungeons and Dragons for Wizards of the Ghost are enjoying all these different systems that are out there and, and wouldn't want to kind of have a monopoly on this. But that's my, my suspicions. I haven't interviewed them, so... Your study did, however, talk a little bit about the ramifications of this popularity or indeed monopoly of Dungeons and Dragons. And I guess the crust of it is that it may be a niche hobby. However, Dungeons and Dragons seems to be dominating the tabletop hobby. And that the problem is that in academia, people are giving way too much attention to Dungeons and Dragons based games. And that it may be unwittingly so, but entrenching this monopoly. So can I ask you to talk a little bit about the findings of your study of how overwhelming this attention towards Dungeons and Dragons is in game scholarship, be that video games or tabletop game scholarship. Of course, this paper is, I do define it as a rant. 
so, so this is me ranting but it's it comes from a from first of all personal experiences from going, going to conferences and visiting every analog kind of track I can because I'm very interested in analog games I go to all the the, the panels on this and I discovered that most of the talks, if not all at some conferences, were about Dungeons and Dragons. And there were no mentions of other system, even when the talk was about the mechanics. So what I did in a kind of, like a, I believe it might have been a manic episode, who knows. I decided to read through all the game studies affiliated journals. I did a search through all of them for role-playing games and tabletop role-playing games. And counting the mentions of Dungeons and Dragons versus other systems and games. And it, it was a huge difference. The other games were mentioned, but they will when they were mentioned, the Dungeons and Dragons would also also be mentioned. It was always there, uh, and I think that's a that's a problem. The media is doing this as well, right? Journalists are doing this as well. They talk about how Dungeons and Dragons is good for your health. Well, most role playing games are good for your mental health, and some are even better than Dungeons and Dragons in that. There are games designed to be good for your mental health. And also games designed to be bad for your mental health. We can talk about that some other time. It's it's out there, right? But we keep hearing about Dungeons and Dragons. And if we as scholars do the same, if we only discuss the mechanics of Dungeons and Dragons and discuss the people who play Dungeons and Dragons and people who play uh, or watch Dungeons and Dragons actual plays, instead of all the different games that are out and different systems out there, we are helping a huge corporate entity that is Hasbro, right? In gaining a monopoly and understanding of our culture, of our, our, our games. And I, I say our, because I am an avid role player. I have designed role-playing games. I'm designing one now. I feel we should remember the huge variety. Something I, I can say is a bit, a, a bit crude, but the fun and the role-playing that happens in Dungeons and Dragons that we lord it for often happens in spite of the rule set not because of it, right? Because the rule set is a tactical rule set. It is about fighting. So they made tweaks here and there over the years to allow for social engagement, the social rules and opening up for, for these things. But in its core, this is a game that is about fighting, gaining levels and gaining loot. And it is a power fantasy. Of course, that can be very enjoyable, but there are many other people who play other games and we can also look at how people play Dungeons and Dragons in other ways. That is in contrast to these rules. If you watch Critical Role, the fun you have when you watch Critical Role is not them rolling dice and figuring out what position they're in. It's the social interaction. And there are very few rules for that social interaction. As a game, as a role-playing game, it does not have many rules for the role-playing. That does something with, with the game. Right? It, it pushes the players towards a combat-oriented playstyle. There's an ideology there of, of the grind being a very rewarding kind of process where you get this treasure, and this is important to have this treasure and you gain experience. I've been grinding my entire life. There's no treasure here. I've hardly gained a level. I'm sorry. Right, So it's there's, <laughs> there's this kind of strange ideology at play within these rules as well. It's actually one of the most distinct quotes that I can remember from your paper. It's that Dungeons & Dragons prioritizes mechanics over story. So it may actually not be the most fitting for certain campaigns. You have been attending these scholarly conventions or have been playing Dungeons & Dragons or role-playing games yourself. So does the critique of Wizards of the Coast ever come up? To me, 
And this was very much affected by the recent launch of Baldur's Gate 3, where I saw how well Wizards of the Coast is cashing in on the success of Baldur's Gate 3. They're making now a movie almost parallel to that about Dungeons and Dragons. They've had interviews with Larian Studios. And of course, it's an amazing game. It's, it's one of its kind. However, it seemed to me that they have this uncanny ability to cast themselves as a very benevolent, fun company that just wants to support gamers. And I wonder if uh, both in scholarly circles and maybe in gaming circles, the entire structure of where Wizards of the Coast is coming from and that they're earning money is a little bit lost. And indeed, your article seems to suggest that this critique is somehow lacking in most cases. Well, the, the, the critiques are there, but I felt that it, within the community of players, it was more evident back in the day. I remember back in the 90s, there was a rewriting of uh, the One Ring poem having TSR being Sauron instead, right? For, for binding all these games into one and, and trying to bind the community in darkness. Um, but so there's always been a tension there between the kind of the corporate overlords and the players. But I, I think that for many of us in scholarly fields and in game studies, the fact that we can write about our favorite games and our favorite activities, and uh, we want to project this as something that is not just fun and good, but maybe even helpful, it keeps us from discussing the problematic sides of it. For instance, the corporatization of the hobby. That this is, uh, for Hasbro, not a large part of their, their profits, but it is a part of their profits, and it is an important brand for them. And that gets lost, I think. But I do believe the people in Wizards of the Coast, I talked to some of them, they're good people. They enjoy games, right? So that, that's why they're there. I talked to people who also design D&D outside of, of their system, doing it uh, for the open gaming license. They enjoy what they're doing, right? And they go for the rules they think work best. Within that kind of culture and within that kind of situation, it's hard to be too critical because... We suffered through the 80s and 90s. 80s with the original bothered about D&D and Patricia Pooling and the satanic scare of the US. And in no way the satanic scare when it was in the 90s uh, following uh, uh, Count Grishnak's burning of the local church here. He did not play D&D though. They, that should be mentioned. He played Merp as I did. There's always been this idea that as for many gaming communities that we are underdogs. So turning around and critiquing publicly the publisher and the game system and maybe saying that some of this is bad is, is in many ways biting the hand that feeds us. I think there's a bit of this going on. But I don't think it, the game studies community is incapable of critiquing Wizards of the Ghosts and Dungeons and Dragons. I just think that they haven't done as much of it as they should. What would you suggest that game study scholars do? How could they still talk about Dungeons and Dragons? As you said, the games that we all love to play yet be a little bit more mindful of what position this brings Wizards of the Coast in. So do you think there should be more critique or should there be always an addendum that mentions that Dungeons & Dragons is a bigger entity than some of its competitors? Or should, let's say, game study scholars be more mindful of including also games that are based on completely different systems in their studies? I got another big question, right? No, I'm, I'm not going to tell people what to do. People should you know, discuss the games they play, first of all. Discussing games they don't play is not that interesting. That's the fun part of being a, a game scorer, right? You can focus on the things you, you find interesting. But I do think more critique 
of the corporate structure and the companies behind games, not just Wizards of the Coast, but we should look at back in the days, White Wolf was a big mover and shaker. Now that's run by Paradox, I believe. So maybe keeping an eye on what's going on there. And we see how a critique of the content works, right? As things have evolved and things have become more progressive within the gaming community, Wizards of the Coast have done a lot of work to change some of the content within Dungeons & Dragons to make it less racist. And that was about time. For me, Dungeons & Dragons was in many ways a wake-up call about racism in our popular culture. Reading Council of the Worms sometimes in the 90s and discovered that, why are these dragons born evil? Right? And what? Why? Right? And then starting to think around that, how ingrained it is in our popular culture, our mind maps, basically. So the critique works. It's possible to change these things. But I think that we do also need to critique the, the mechanics, do comparisons of mechanics, discuss what do these mechanics do for the games? What do they do for the players? I'd like to see more papers on that. Because there are some really interesting things going on in D&D, and there are very interesting things going on in other games. This weekend, I, I ran for the first time a game of Die, the RPG, based on the wonderful comic book, which should be a mandatory reading within game studies. But our session, short as it was, was powerful, emotional, and hilariously fun. There were hardly any need for combat tools that this was all us coming together defining our roles uh, and creating this strange freudian meta universe where we were going through our dungeons and dragons like dungeon and facing our failures and that was the rules or ritual as the game referred to it that allowed to happen so that became a completely different experience than from playing dungeons and dragons or from from playing fiasco or playing the new Star Wars rule set, the Genesis rule set, right? So that creates a completely different narrative than that what Dungeons and Dragons would do and gives a lot more agency to the players. Again, I'm ranting here, but it is, I think it's important to keep in mind that these rules do different things and creates different role-playing experiences. So I would love to see more papers on more of these games, a more variety of games, because we all play all these different games. But we, we tend to go for D&D because that's easier to get through reviews because people know what it is. Yeah, thank you actually for that, Rand, because that perfectly covered my next question, which was asking you to mention whether you know any systems that are particularly good and they are not D&D based. In the video gaming realm, I was very pleasantly surprised by Disco Elysium a few years back, which does play around with some Dungeons & Dragons rule. I guess there's a lot of similarities, but it strips the combat completely out. And you have items like clothing and different social traits, which actually substitute the entire combat mechanics. So if there's other standouts that you would like to mention, please do rent on, because this way we don't speak only about D&D. Yeah, to take that. If you if you want to do a comparison and using video games as an allegory, you could not tell the story of Disco Elysium using the rule set used in Baldur's Gate 3. It would be impossible. It would be a completely different story. So it's important to keep in mind that mechanics matter. So there's systems like Fate, there's Power by the Apocalypse. Many of these are, are openly available. Forged in the Dark also allow for very interesting things and some very specific types of games that are very niche and focus on different stuff. I enjoy a lot a game called Goblin Quest, where you play a bunch of goblins. So you die a lot and you just replace them with a new goblin. And it's all about you're just 
you know, that one day they're alive because they die in one day. That's the life cycle. And it creates a different kind of hilarious situation with less risk, for instance, right? Because you, you can die nine times or something. My suggestion is to, to keep an open mind and, and look at what's going on within the role-playing community and design is always changing. There is an argument to be made that a lot happened in a forum called The Forge uh, some time ago. It's gone now, uh, but there are books on it. And so it's, it's still with us. And the games that came out of that community is still with us. And they, they are, a, a, in many ways, a, a counter to the D&D approach to gaming where combat is in focus because that DD is not even alone in that right combat is important because role-playing games they want story and stories want conflict and the easiest way to do conflict is through violence but there are these other games right that allow us to see different types of conflict emotional conflict and even mental conflict like Lubed's Bride where you all play parts of the same person's psyche discovering it's this person's trauma there are so many different ways of approaching this this collective narrative process that is role playing games but sometimes of course you just want to pick up a sword and slay something and that's okay right it's okay personally i would recommend another system than Dungeons and Dragons there. So I would recommend like something like Forbidden Lands for, for my fantasy fix. I'm playing a campaign now. I'm having a great time. Uh, it has all the fantasy trappings and all the combat and everything, but it also has these great tools for procedurally generating a, a story. It makes it easy for me as a GM to fill the world and make it alive. And so it's so many options. Again, D&D can be a lot of fun. All these games are dependent on one thing. They have one thing in common. They're dependent not just on rules, but they're dependent on the table. Who are you playing with? The people coming together to have fun. That's the most important factor. I have very fond memories of D&D. Even loved the new movie. It reminded me of all the good times I had playing when I was a kid. That's great. And thank you also for the recommendations. That covers my ending question. So I would like to ask you, did D&D actually help you out a lot during the lockdown and during the past years? Or did tabletop games help you out a lot? Because you said that many people got around to it thanks to COVID. So I wonder if it had an effect on you too as a scholar, but both as an enthusiast. I'm a huge nerd. So my um, love for role-playing games never faltered. I started being more and more interested in tabletop gaming before the pandemic. I think uh, Critical Role was part of it, uh, of all things. Even though I, I wouldn't play Dungeons and Dragons, watching them play was amazing to me. But to also point out, the pandemic was survivable because of the tabletop games that we had. We could play through Roll20 or Discord. And my partner and myself would play uh, board games a lot and we'll find one-on-one -on -one role playing games that are really interesting and really fun and can get really emotional. So we always could sit down and play. So the lockdown was a good time in many ways. And I think it was an important turning point for, for the hobby. A lot of people rediscovered board games and tabletop gaming and role playing games. I think it was on a, a net positive for the hobby, even if it was a difficult time. And I guess that really does double down on the fact that it's a healthy thing to do. But you don't need Dungeons and Dragons for it. You don't need Dungeons and Dragons for it. But, you know, that's a completely different conversation to discuss the health benefits of role-playing games and tabletop gaming. I could keep ranting for hours on these topics. I'm sorry to say. Thank you very much, Christian, for shedding light on your article. It's available online through the usual networks for anybody who's interested in it. 
I would love to talk to you on a wide range of other topics, and I'm sure that we will have another session on white supremacy and tabletop games and video games. But until then, I'm wishing you a wonderful time. Good luck with your scholarship and with your teaching, and have hopefully a sunny autumn day in Norway. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 